My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. E.T. Carpe diem. Seize the day. There's no place like home. He's looking at you, kid. Do or do not. There is no try. They remember forever the night they played the Titans. Well, welcome back to our series called At the Movies. Um, in this series, we have been looking at a sermon that was preached by a man named Solomon to all of the Israelites. In fact, he preached this message about 3,000 years ago. And as we've been tearing it apart and looking at it, we've been using some movies to help us to see some of the themes and some of the things that Solomon was talking about. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up today to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, if today's your first time here, right? You're like, hey, this is my first moment in the room. Let me just kind of catch you up real quick, all right, on kind of what's been happening. So Solomon, Solomon's been sharing this message with the Israelites, right? And inside of it, he's been looking back on the journey of his entire life. And he tells them three things here at the very beginning. He says, look, I want you to remember some things. I want you to remember who it is that you are. I want you to remember what it is that you have come through. And I want you to remember where it is that you are headed. And then last week, Solomon, the guy who's known as the wisest man in all of history, he sets out with wisdom in order to fulfill his life and to discover the mysteries of the world. And in that pursuit and in that quest, using the wisdom that he had, his wisdom failed him. It failed him. It came up short. And he used this wisdom. In fact, we use the words under the sun to describe what this wisdom was. In fact, that's any sort of ideas, knowledge, things that we can observe and understand, maybe through science or through nature, that is under the sun wisdom. And Solomon used that wisdom to pursue fulfillment in his life, and it failed him. And so he left that pursuit to, to pursue other things. He's like, if wisdom is not where it's at, then, then I'm going to try something totally different. And so today, Solomon's going to turn to an entirely new vice. He's not going to forget about wisdom in the course of it, but he's going to use it to explore something new, pleasure. In fact, he turns to the four common things about pleasure, right? Wine, wealth, work. And then he circles all the way back around and even comes back to the idea of wisdom and pleasure together. So hopefully you've found Ecclesiastes chapter 2 by now, and let's look starting in verse 1. Solomon writes this, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, I thank you for Solomon. 
probably not a lot of people have ever said that to you that way. But I thank you for the wisdom that he had. I thank you for the crazy journey of life that he went through. And I thank you for this passage, this message that he sat down, actually stood up in order to deliver to all of your people. God, so that maybe we could learn something from him. More than anything, that's our prayer today. God, that we would learn from these words that are here in your word, designed to instruct us and to help us to find you. God, we give you all of the glory and all of the honor, and it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. It's been 84 years, and I can still smell the fresh paint. The china had never been used. The sheets had never been slept in. Titanic was called the ship of dreams, and it was, it really was. what all the fuss is about. It doesn't look any bigger than the Mauritania. You could be blasé about some things, Rose, but not about Titanic. It's over 100 feet longer than Mauritania, and far more luxurious. Welcome to Titanic. It was the ship of dreams to everyone else. To me, it was a slave ship taking me back to America in chains. Outwardly, I was everything a well-brought-up girl should be. Inside, 
I was screaming. I saw my whole life as if I'd already lived it. An endless parade of parties and cotillions, yachts and polo matches. Always the same narrow people, the same mindless chatter. I felt like I was standing at a great precipice with no one to pull me back, no one who cared or even noticed. your hand. I'll pull you back over. Mr. Dawson, I... Jack. Jack? I want to thank you for what you did. Not just for... for pulling me back, but for your discretion. You're welcome. Look, I know what you must be thinking. Poor little rich girl. What does she know about misery? No. No, it's not what I was thinking. What I was thinking was, what could have happened to this girl to make her think she had no way out? Well, I... It was everything. It was my whole world and all the people in it. And the inertia of my life. Plunging ahead and me, powerless to stop it. So as the movie opens up, we meet one of the two main characters. Rose. Rose has it all. In fact, her fiancé says to her a little bit later in the movie, he says to her, just, if you'll just give me your heart, I'll give you whatever you desire because we're royalty, Rose. We're royalty. But instead of a woman who is filled with happiness, we find a woman who is distraught and hanging on to the edge of a boat 
a boat that she has no idea in just a couple days' time will sink from underneath her feet. But she's still on the edge, ready to jump anyways. She was empty. And a life of pleasure and the prospect of continuing that life had made her empty. There was nothing there for her. And I know, I know you, I know me, I know lots of people that this is their pursuits in life. How much pleasure can I amass? Solomon said this. He said that he decided to test a life of pleasure. In other words, he was experimenting with this by running from party to party. He was enjoying it all. He put on the party masks. He put on the fun. He put on the laughter. And you know, this idea of laughter that he talks about here is like laughter at a child's game. Right? It's there. It happens in the moment. But there's no fulfillment from that laughter as to whatever it is. There's no lasting impact from that laughter. It's fleeting. And there's no joy. And Solomon says to all of this, he says, but behold, this was also vanity. He said, I said of laughter, it's really just madness. And of pleasure, what use is it? He said, I searched with my heart, even how to cheer my body with wine, but my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. And I even thought about how to lay hold on folly so that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. See, Solomon came to the same sort of conclusion that Rose had come to, right? He said, this sort of life, chasing after every pleasure that there is, is vanity. At the end, it feels fake. And no matter how much you spend on it, cheap. Rose wrestled with the thought that the only way, the only way to get out of this, <clears throat> the only way to find some sort of meaning in this meaningless existence was to jump. She was wrong, though. There's another way out. But before we get to that, I, I just want to argue with you for just a second that two things about pleasure and wealth. And the first one is that I don't believe that pleasure and wealth are inherently bad. Somebody that has either one of these two things is not inherently a bad person. And nor do they necessarily lead to bad things. And they don't have to lead to an empty existence. <clears throat> Here's the second thing. Actually, let me back up. The reason I say that is because at the end of this chapter, Solomon comes back to these two ideas about pleasure and everything that God has given. And he says, listen, it is a gift that is given from God, and it's a gift in which we can enjoy who God is. In fact, he says that there is no more pleasure than for somebody to sit down and to enjoy a good meal. Of 
Greg's all about that one. I heard an amen over there. It was very silent. Amen. It was good. I'm going to encourage that. All right. It's okay. He's like, good meal. It's okay to derive pleasure from a good meal. Amen. Thank you. I got a couple other amens on that one. It's good. I agree with you on all of that. Here's the second thing, though, about this idea of pleasure and wealth. The person who pursues a life of pleasure and fulfilling it through wealth and work and through wisdom and all of these other measures do not instantaneously become empty. Sometimes we have this perspective that because these things are bad, that when somebody pursues them, that instantly they must feel this void that, is, that exists in their life. And the fact is, is that's not true. For a time, it is a substitute. And for a time, it will fill. And so there are people that pursue that and they go, my life is full and I am fulfilled because I have everything that I need. <clears throat> and maybe that's you. You're sitting here and you're like, you're arguing with yourself in your mind. He's talking about all of these things about pleasure that can't fill you up. But I, I don't know. I, I feel okay. I, I, I can meet my needs right now and things are going okay in, in my world. And so maybe you're arguing with yourself that my money, my life, my pleasure, all of those things are okay. But Solomon's warning is this. In the end, pleasure is a sinking ship. Pleasure is a sinking ship. You know, to my knowledge, to my knowledge, no one on their deathbed has ever declared, I wish I'd experienced more pleasure in life. I wish that I had gone to more parties in my life. I wonder, I wonder what would have happened if as people had sat out on the boat, Titanic, and had known from the very moment that they stepped foot on the boat that it was going to sink. There's no getting off, there's no changing, there's no going back. The boat's going to sink with you on it. What do you think that would have changed? What would their next two or three days on the boat have looked like if they had known that the boat was going to sink. But the fact is, they didn't know. And instead, what we see as this movie continues on is, is a lot of arrogant boasting and positioning. In fact, let's just watch and see what happened as they traveled the largest moving object ever made by the hand of man in all history. And our master shipbuilder, Mr. Andrews here, designed her from the keel plates up. Well, I may have knocked her together, but the idea was Mr. Ismay's. He envisioned a steamer so grand in scale and so luxurious in its appointments that its supremacy would never be challenged. And here she is, willed into solid reality. <laughs> Not yet lit the last four boilers. No, I don't see the need. We are making excellent time. The Pressner's the size of Titanic. Now I want to marvel at her speed. We must give them something new to print. This maiden voyage of Titanic must make headlines. Mr. Ismay, I would prefer not to push the engines until they've been properly run in. Of course, I'm just a passenger. I leave it to your good offices to decide what's best. Glorious end to your final crossing if we were to get into New York on Tuesday night and surprise them all. Make the morning papers. 
Retire with a bang, eh, E.J.? Good man. Most unfortunate, Captain. Water, 14 feet above the keel in 10 minutes. In the 4P, in all three holds, and in boiler room 6. That's right, sir. When can we get underway? That's five compartments. She can stay afloat with the first four compartments breached, but not five. Not five. As she goes down by the head, the water will spill over the tops of the bulkheads at E-deck from one to the next, back and back. There's no stopping it. The pumps, if we open the, the doors... The pumps buy you time, but minutes only. From this moment, no matter what we do, Titanic will founder. But this ship can't sink. She's made of iron, sir. I assure you, she can. And she will. It is a mathematical certainty. How much time? An hour. Two at most. How many aboard, Mr. Murdo? 2,200 souls on board, sir. Well, I believe you may get your headlines, Mr. Ismay. Wait, wait, wait! Mr. Andrews! All rose. Won't you even make a try for it? Sorry, but that didn't build you a stronger ship, young Rose. It's going fast. We have to move. Wait. Good luck to you, Rose. And to you. Titanic, right? The greatest feat that man had ever accomplished. An incredible boat that at the beginning of the movie, one person says, not even God himself could sink this ship. Such boasting of the greatness, right? They were looking for fulfillment in their accomplishments of all of the works of the things that they had done. And Solomon, continuing his search for fulfillment, did the same thing. And he says this, he said, I made great works. He says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He said, I even made myself pools from which the water, to water the forest of growing trees. Skip down a few verses. He says, so I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He said, my wisdom still remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was the reward for all of my toil. But then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
You know, one scholar called this section the gospel of self. The gospel of self. Over ten times Solomon says, I, in this passage. I did this. I did that. And all of his work brought him pleasure for a time. Until the moment. Until the moment where he looked up. That same moment where they looked up in the ship and realized this thing's going down. You know, it was interesting to me in the movie Titanic that someone built the ship, Mr. Andrews. Someone captained the ship. But someone else was the one who goaded and pushed them on, foolishly guiding everything that took place. And it was all just for the headlines. Just for the luxury. Just for the accolades. The fame. Earlier in the movie, the boat engineer is a moment where he's talking with Rose and they're walking the deck and they're pointing out the lifeboats that are on deck. And Rose says, there doesn't seem to be enough lifeboats for all the people that are on the boat. And the engineer says, I know. He said, I pushed for even more. He said, but somebody said that they would look too cluttered on the deck. A little further on in chapter 2, Solomon says this. He says, and yet I perceived this, that the same event happens to all of them, the wise and the foolish. He said, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Solomon understood something. All of us face a common enemy. Death. The wise and the foolish both were headed towards the same destination point. Dying. It didn't matter who you were or what you had done in this life. You were still going to die. There's a man by the name of Greg Easterbrook. He wrote a a book called The Progress Paradox. And in it, he admits that as Americans, we are constantly improving as far as in material terms. Today, we live better than our parents lived before us, and they lived better than their parents before them, and that generation lived better than their parents before them, and so it goes in American progress. But at the same time, Mr. Easterbrook notes this, He says, as people grow steadily better off, yet seemingly they are no happier. And he surmises that because this is, there is a baseline anxiety in all of our hearts, and that anxiety is the fear of death. All of that stuff, all of those things that are accumulated in life, all of that gain that we make still doesn't alleviate death. 
you know, for just that brief moment in the book. Mr. Easterbrook gets so close, right? He opens up this moment into the human soul. And if only he'd had some sort of answer for the anxiety of death, this problem that he defined. You know, at the end of the movie, that same engineer who said that, well, the decks would have been too cluttered with all of these lifeboats on there. He looks at Rose and he says, here's the remorse that I have. I didn't build you a better ship. When before his pride and his arrogance had said this was the best that could have ever been done. It's the best that's ever been done by any man's hands. He knew that there was no fulfillment now in watching a ship that was going down. Death had made everything seem foolish at that moment to him. You know, we could come at this chapter and go, my goodness, what's the point of living if this is what it's like? But Solomon gives some hope right here at the very end of the chapter, and he says this, he says, but there is nothing better for a person than this, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. He said, I saw that this was from the hand of God. Later in chapter 3, he says that this is a very gift of God to be able to enjoy those things. Because apart from God, who could eat or have any sort of enjoyment? Uh, Son, son, do you have the slightest comprehension what you're doing? Not really. Well, you're about to go into the snake pit. What are you planning to wear? (laughs) I figured. Come on. I saw that in the Nickelodeon once and I always wanted to do it. Pass for a gentleman. Almost. It's extraordinary. <laughs> he must have been nervous, but he never faltered. They assumed he was one of them. Heir to a railroad fortune, perhaps. New money, obviously, but still a member of the club. Mother, of course, could always be counted upon. Tell us of the accommodations and steerage, Mr. Dawson. I hear they're quite good on this ship. The best I've seen, ma'am. Hardly any rats. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Dawson is joining us from the third class. He was of some assistance to my fiance last night. It turns out that Mr. Dawson is quite a fine artist. He was kind enough to show me some of his work today. Rose and I differ somewhat in our definition of fine art. Not to impugn your work, sir. <clears throat> it may be mine on paper, but in the eyes of God, 
She belongs to Thomas Andrews. But these all for me. Just start from the outside and work your way in. He knows every rivet in her, don't you, Thomas? Indeed. Your ship is a wonder, Mr. Andrews, truly. Thank you, Rose. How do you take a caviar, sir? No caviar for me, thanks. Never did like it much. And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now, my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place. You know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky hand at poker. A very lucky hand. Mm. All life is a game of luck. Mm. A real man makes his own luck, Archie. Right, Dawson? Hmm. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, I've got everything I need right here with me. I've got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am, on the grandest ship in the world, having champagne with you fine people. I'll take some of that. I figure life's a gift, and I don't intend on wasting it. You never know what hand you're going to get dealt next. You learn to take life as it comes at you. Oh, here you go, Cal. To make each day count. Well said, Jack. Yeah, yeah. To make me count. To make it count. Well, perhaps not intentional on the writers of Hollywood's part, but it is interesting that the two guys who are fighting over the affections of Rose, Mr. Hockley and Jack Dawson, that they have two very different opinions on life. The first says, hard work, you make your own luck. Second one says, it's out of my hands. I'm on God's good graces. Whatever it is that he decides to give is what it is that I'll do. And so I'm going to make every moment count with that perspective in mind. It's also interesting to me that of the two of them, one of them survives and one doesn't. The one who said, I'm going to make my own way, do my own thing, I make my own luck, he finds his way onto a boat and survives. Mr. Hockley lives. And then there's Jack, and he doesn't. Doesn't make it onto a boat. And he dies in the water. Now you may say, well, wait a second, that seems like, that means that we should make our own way, make our own luck. That's got to be what it is, the message that, that is being sent here. And certainly, I think Hollywood might agree with you and say that that is the message that they would be trying to send, that certainly the guy who said, I'm on God's good graces, he died, so God didn't have very good graces, did he? But you know, the thing that's interesting to me is Mr. Hockley didn't escape death. Sure, he didn't die at the hands of the RMS Titanic. But the movie, as it opens up, tells us that Rose is the last known survivor of the Titanic. And by the movie's end, she dies too. Everybody dies. Not to ruin the movie for you or anything like that. 
I don't want you to miss this, so let's check out clip four, and then I'll come back in just a second. Right ahead, sir. Pause! Do you see any moving? No, sir. None moving, sir. Check them! Bring that oar up here. These are dead, sir. Now give way. Head easy. Careful with your oars. Don't hit them. Is there anyone alive out there? Keep checking them! Keep looking! Is there anyone alive out there? Can anyone hear me? Fifteen hundred people went into the sea when Titanic sank from under us. There were 20 boats floating nearby, and only one came back. One. Six were saved from the water, myself included. Six out of 1,500. Afterward, the 700 people in the boats had nothing to do but wait. Wait to die. Wait to live. Wait for an absolution that would never come. you haven't heard anything else today, then I want you to just catch this last section with me. Because Solomon finishes off the chapter saying this. He says, for the one, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, in other words, the person who falls short of pleasing God, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. 
There's a small problem with what Solomon has just said here, and the writer in Hebrews helps clear that up. In Hebrews 11:6, he says this, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is the only way to please God. And through faith, a person can gain wisdom. Through faith, a person can gain knowledge. And through faith, a person can gain joy. But without it, all of those things are meaningless. Without making a huge leap, I think most of us in this room probably have faith. And we understand the knowledge and the joy that we're talking about here. We understand that we have to place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord, the one who's in charge, and as the one who lived a perfect life because we couldn't live a perfect life. We're sinners. And as the one who took the punishment that we had earned because we're failures. I think most of us would understand that that's what it takes is putting all of our trust in Jesus in order to have life and to have eternal life. Much like the lifeboats, they were lifeboats to those who were drowning and in the water. 1,500 people went into the sea that day and only one boat came back. That one boat was able to save six people. Now you may look at that and you may go, man, how insignificant that is. 1,500 people and just six were saved. I don't think those six people, if you were to ask them if it was insignificant, would say that it was insignificant. I think that they would tell you that it was huge. We live in a community with lots of people who are in the sea and not in a lifeboat. And we are the boat. The church is God's lifeboat filled with people that are helping to drag others out of the sea and into the boat. Here's the sad news. It's not 1,500 people in our sea. It's 15,000. 15,000 people. I think the question becomes, what are we going to do about that? Are we simply okay with knowing that we're safe in the boat?
I heard an incredible story this week from a friend of mine. He pastors a senior adult church. And he said that he had a young lady in his church. She's 80. But he had a young lady in his church who decided that she was not okay with that in their community. But the problem was, she said, I don't, she said, all of my friends go to church. She said, I've gone to church for so long. And so she prayed about it, and God sent her to Dairy Queen. I like her God a whole lot. <laughs> and so for the next six months, every Thursday afternoon, she went to Dairy Queen and sat down. And over the course of six months, she met a young woman who was 18, a college student who was working there. And they began to form a friendship, to talk to each other, more than just high and by, but about life things, about what was going on. And this lady began to invite this 18-year-old young girl into her home to come have home-cooked meals together. And she began to bring her boyfriend for game nights to hang out. And three weeks ago, this 80-year-old shared the greatest gift that she knew about, about how to get in the lifeboat. And for the very first time in that 18-year-old's life, she prayed to invite Jesus to be the one who was in charge of her life. There was a guy that was on the ship of Titanic. His name was Archibald Gracie. He survived the real Titanic, but he only lived for a few short months afterwards. And it's recorded that on his deathbed, just eight months later, that he said this, we must get them all in the boats. Let me tell you one more story about a guy who was on Titanic. He was a writer and author, and he was bringing books to America to come sell. And as the front of the boat was going down, he jumped off early. Now what they don't tell you in the movie, the water was probably somewhere south of freezing because of all of the salt that was there and it only took about 15 to maybe at the most 30 minutes for somebody to die of hypothermia in the water. So as he was floating in the water, a lifeboat came by and he reached out to the boat and they hit him with the paddle. Said, there's no room for you. If you get in, you'll tip our boat. And he passed out. It was the last thing that the young man remembered. Several hours later, he woke up laying on the Carpathia. None of his identification was on him. And couldn't figure out what had happened. An hour or so later, a woman walked in. She said, oh good, I'm so glad that you're awake. She said, here's all of your information. She said, I took it off of you and we pulled you into the boat. She'd been on the boat that passed him by. And he looked at her with a bewildered look on his face. It was like, I, I don't understand what happened. She said, after we went by, she said, I screamed to everybody in the boat, that's my son! We have to save him! And they turned around and we pulled you onto the boat. 
There was no relation whatsoever prior to that point. But I can promise you, they had the best of relationship afterwards. And so here's the question of the day. Who's your one? Now some of you may be going, I have some family members that live somewhere else and I am desperately praying for God to, to lead them and maybe to use me to help them to get in the boat. And you know what? We pray with you about that, but God placed you here. Who's your one here? And what are you doing about that? Maybe you need to go to Dairy Queen. Because God wants to use us to get everybody in the boats. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that you've given us these real-life examples of people who understood that the ship is sinking. And God, that there are thousands of people who don't know you that are dying all around us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that we can go to Bunko tomorrow. We can go to a fireworks display on Wednesday. We can go to soccer games. God, we can go wherever it is that you are sending us here and we can be intentional about that. God, and it can be as simple as just beginning a conversation about where do they go to church and inviting them to come here. God, I'm so thankful that you sent us into Australia for the 15,000 plus people that live around us. God, overflow our boat. Overflow our boat. It's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.